And that's that's a lot of what I've done is I would be with a distributor, I'd find out, you know, who called on Whole Foods or who called on, you know, any of the accounts and ask them, hey, what's going on with the buyer? What are they looking for? Um, here's my ideas. Here's what I have. And they say, hey, oh, they're really looking for this for, you know, a Mother's Day program. So let's let's pitch this or hey, they're not really, you know, reviewing this category for four months. So let's get everything ready and come back in four months and, you know, send an email to the buyer directly or self CC me and start to build a relationship with the retailers yourself. This is Get Shit Done, a show about female entrepreneurs who are not willing to settle for 4% and the stories and steps they took to scale their companies to the top through traction by getting shit done and growing on their own terms. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done Podcast, Queens. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, aka Chief Get Shit Done Officer. We are the originators of the fuck 4% movement. And when we say 4%, we're talking about the total revenues that female-founded companies currently generate. We deserve better we can do better. And we will together. I don't know if you noticed, but health tech companies are popping up everywhere with the rise of diseases like cancer. And it's super important because being diagnosed with cancer has unfortunately become common not only for people beyond a certain age, but even for really young people. This unfortunately has been a reality within my family, but also with friends like my friend, Leah Kaplanis. But Leah didn't start a health tech company. To give you some context, when Leah was 26, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and she took an unconventional route that we're starting to see more people take today by looking into holistic medicines and a holistic lifestyle instead of chemical treatments. Her treatment looked like being guided by a holistic healer, meeting with acupuncturists, meeting with Chinese medical doctors, chiropractors, Ayurvedic practitioners, you name it. Then she went completely vegan by juicing and eating veggies. But a little more context, Leah had been a vegetarian since she was 18 and that was a lifestyle of her family. And the treatment started working, but as Leah was healing, she completely stopped socializing to avoid the temptations of an unhealthy lifestyle. But when she did get better, she started missing that socialization with friends because as a 20-something, let's be real, drinking was a part of many of our lives. So while Leah didn't want to party the way she used to, she did want to participate, but with a healthier option. That's why she created Social Enjoyments, a sparkling sake. And to get started, she interviewed 3,000 people online and 250 people in person to understand the product she was producing and was able to successfully find a producer. And now you can find social across the U.S. in grocery stores, restaurants, baseball stadiums. She was even featured on the show Million Dollar Buyer. And I'm not gonna front y'all, social is literally amazing. And I'm not just hyping it up because she's my friend. We literally used to keep cases stocked in the headquarters of my former company. It is that 
good. And a healthier option that was introduced way before the Trulies and the White Claws of the world. But here's the catch with CPG companies, and that means consumer product goods. It's one of the hardest segments to not only get started in, but also to successfully scale in because it is so capital intensive. So that's what you're going to learn from Leah today, how she got the initial capital to start social, but also how she was able to successfully scale it by mastering business development and navigating the very complicated journey of finding distributors and getting into the top tier retailers. She's also going to tell you about how she raised 4.5 million from investors and how she navigates new product development today and so much more. But if you haven't yet, make sure to click subscribe so you know an episode to drop to get free traction tips from queens like Leah every single week. And make sure to head on over to rate and review our podcast. Queens, this really helps us serve more queens like you and slaying your way to traction together. And if you're looking for support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join to join the fuck 4% movement of women gaining traction and growing their companies on their own terms. And without further ado, Queen Leah Kaplanis. Leah, welcome to Get Shit Done. Thank you, Alex. So happy to be here. This is near and dear to me because Leah and I met in Chicago while I was scaling my last company. And there was a very small segment of us women entrepreneurs at the time that were doing it. And we would do these little meetups that were great. It was nice to just have other women that could identify with your struggle and really share space, but more importantly, swap ideas and experiences. Mm -hmm. So I'm really yeah, excited. You and, you and Liz were kind of the leaders of that, bringing women together. So this is sort of that next evolution of you really uh, helping women to support each other. Thanks, Queen. Well, I'm really excited because I've loved watching Leah's journey, especially in the CPG space, which is extremely hard. Like growing a business is hard, but CPG is really hard because of it's capital intensive. It's really hard to get funding. But before we even hop into that, I would just love for you to take us back to what you were doing before you even started social. Yes. So I was living in Chicago and I was working for Nestle. And at the end, I was with them for eight years. I did sales and I called on grocery headquarters in the Midwest and represented their brands at grocery headquarters. And I was getting my MBA part-time at Booth, which is where, you know, we kind of met and I know you were, uh, did that for undergrad, right? University of Chicago. Yep. Liz did it for winter booth. Yep. And then I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer and then the whole journey began. That's what, what is so interesting to me about your story too, because a lot of times founders are creating companies to solve for a problem they personally had. So yeah, I would love for you to dive into like, why did you start social? And I know it was connected to your cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So essentially once I was diagnosed I pretty quickly chose to, you know, to go down the holistic path, which meant I was, you know, meeting with lots of different alternative therapists, trying lots of different diets, you know, veganism, raw veganism, macrobiotics, Ayurvedic, even exploring things like energy medicine, you know, you name it, anyone I could find that could, you know, have a perspective on how to heal. And so I didn't drink alcohol at all that whole time. And I learned a lot about as humans, you know, how our bodies work with via nutrition and exercise and all that kind of stuff. But 
also how it's so important for us to connect with each other and feel comfortable that we are part of a community and because we're social creatures. And so I didn't drink alcohol for, you know, two plus years. And I missed those moments when you're having a drink with someone and you're really, you know, sharing your things that you don't share with people on the regular. Uh, and just, yeah, those moments of just relaxing and joy and play. So then I started drinking again when I was healed, but I couldn't find anything out there that I felt really good about drinking. Mm. It's it's so fascinating because there's so many links between you and Caitlin from Simple Mills, who was also part of our like breakfast crew of Chicago women that were meeting up to swap scale stories. And I just remember both of you had, you know, started these CPG companies out of your own needs. Like hers was the gluten intolerance in the sense of like, it was just making you tired. And it's interesting because when I hit probably 29, I started feeling the same. I know Liz had started experiencing that too, when we were building ZipFit. And she mm. cut gluten completely out. And then for you specifically, when you started social, I found it so fascinating because it came from your own experience going through cancer, which has, I mean, gone through my family, especially the women. And a lot of it is tight. It's not genetics for us. So a lot of our doctors are saying it's from the things that we're consuming. Mm. Um, and even in our office at ZipFit's headquarters, when we had them, we had social there all the time because like, you know, some offices have beer and wine and stuff, but like we had social, <laughs> um, but getting started with CPG is really hard. It is capital intensive. You have to pay for a product, you have to pay for packaging. So can you walk us through, you, you, you decided to start this company after you went through this diagnosis and you're like, I miss that social component. It's not necessarily about getting fucked up off of, you know, alcohol. Right. It's that social connection. Like I'm a social drinker too. Like I just like being around people and being able to relax. But when you had this idea and you're deciding I'm going to start up, where did you get started? Where did you even get the capital? Because CPG is really hard because of the amount of capital that is required. Yeah. So Essentially, I did start with New Venture Challenge at grad school, and there we wrote a business plan and came up with a you know a budget of what we would need, how much money we would need. And then I started shopping it around to colleagues, family, you know, and admittedly, my my family probably put in eh, maybe 100K out of the 350 that we raised amongst a lot of family, my father's best friend. I mean, you just never know where it's going to come from. Yeah. So we raised about 350,000 before we produced, but I will say that before that time, I started working on this thing full time within four months of the idea. I quit my job at Nestle and yeah. And we didn't launch until over a year and a half later. And I worked on it full time, just using my savings. And um, I guess each founder put in maybe $10,000, but then I didn't take a salary for probably, you know, at least a year and a half. And I, I wanted to ask that question because I, I talk to founders about this all the time. There is such, I think, disillusionment around where capital for startups comes from. Um, because so often people are seeing the shark tanks of the world or they're seeing Inc. Mag put out, look at these, this entrepreneur that raised all this money, but no one talks about how they even got started because mm -hmm. oftentimes we're conflating like institutional capital VC with, mm -hmm. you know, the founder's own checking savings, friends and family. And mm -hmm. I saw this really good stat 
probably a couple years ago around the pillars of where capital comes from. And the largest pillars, I think it was like 60 billion comes from friends and family if you are in that position to have that. And then 185 billion came from the founder themselves. So similar to what you said, savings, credit cards, all of that. So I <laughs> wanted to bring that up to people's attention because it's so easy to get caught up in the narrative and the glamorization of startups today of like, oh, people are just getting checks to get checks. No, you have to put in and risk a lot of your own stuff and put yourself on the line, um, which is really important. So, you know, you got the capital and you've been working on this thing for a year and a half. So what was that first moment that you made your first sell? Like, I always love founders who have backgrounds in sales because if you can master sales as a founder, you are in, in a really good position. So do you remember the first time you sold social? Where were you? Let's see. My first big sale uh, actually came to our distributor because in alcohol, there's a three-tiered system. And actually in a lot of CPG, food and beverage, you, you're selling first to a distributor who then has the delivery trucks and delivers to each individual store for the retailers. And so it can be really challenging even just to get accepted by the distributor. Actually, it's incredibly challenging because they've got thousands of items. They have a, their sales force. They don't want to spread them too thin. And so, you know, there's a chicken and egg situation where they'll tell you, we're not going to pick you up unless retailers want you. But the retailers, when you go to them, they want to know who's your distributor. Can I even get it? And so what I did, and probably one of the biggest reasons for social success is I did both at the same time. I went to retailers like Whole Foods and Mariano's and I said, here's my PowerPoint slide. Here's what I'm going to create, you know, for months in advance before we produced and basically got Mariano's on board. Nina Mariano mm-hmm. helped us and uh, Amanda Puck over there. I actually just talked to them the other day and they said in, the, in an email that they would carry social. Mm-hmm. And I had gone to all these distributors, you know, there's a Budweiser one, a Miller Coors distributor, there's all these different distributors. And the day that the a distributor finally said yes, his name was Ted Champion, and he was our champion. And I actually called my team. And instead of telling them, oh, this is a big success, I called them and I said, you know, guys, I need to call an emergency meeting. Some, something's happened. I got him on the phone thinking that it was like going to be the worst news ever. And then I told him, we got in, we got in. And I like, I, I may have done a cartwheel. I mean, it was, it I was it. such a huge win. Yeah. There's so many things there that are, are, I have so many questions because distribution for any startup is the name of the game. Like if you can master distribution on traction, it's really important, but especially in CPG, because you're selling into a lot of places, but a couple things came up, especially around first the distributors themselves. I think a lot of people might not be familiar what that means, especially if you're not in products. Can you walk us through like, what is the nature of distributors? And then how do you even go about getting a distributor if you are selling CPG products? So imagine these retailers, right? Any grocery store retailers, or you can even think of Walmart, Target, any, anything like that. And they have to deal with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of suppliers. So rather than deal directly with the companies, 
especially in alcohol, legally, they go with distributors. So distributors, what they do is they'll buy, let's say, pallets of your product, and they actually have the delivery trucks that go to each individual store. So they're, they're essentially your delivery crew, because imagine, you know, if you had to have your own trucks shipping to tens of thousands of stores all around the country. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like what the Grubhub seamlesses of the world are doing for restaurants. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they are your delivery trucks and they have a sales team and the retailers rely on the distributors to vet out companies uh, and products to really bring them only what is you know trending or whatever is interesting. And also that the companies that they carry can consistently deliver, can pay their bills, all of that kind of stuff too. So they're sort of the intermediary. Mm, Interesting. So then you are knocking on all these doors. I'm guessing it's a very small world. So there's only like so many people you can go to. So how did you even get in front of Ted? How did you even know where to find his information? So I'm a big fan of just talking to as many people as you can and asking lots of questions. And you can even go into a store and ask a clerk at the store, you know, if someone's stocking shelves or the, the manager of the store and say, hey, you know, I've got a, a beauty product or a food, you know, some sort of food product, who distributes to you? What what distributors do you recommend? And before long, you're going to find out that in every category, there's probably, you know, two to three to five distributors for that category. And then you start calling them, seeing where there's a fit, you know, who kind of specializes in what products you carry. And yeah, I mean, if you just get out in the world and start talking to people or making phone calls, it does, the world does shrink down and you start to understand the community. It's fascinating because I feel like there's so many connections and similarities of companies that are in the product space. Like I see it with, even when you said that you can go even talk to the people in the stores that reminded me of Sarah Blakely, how she went into Saks and was like talking to all these people. And even, you know, when it came to Caitlin from Simple Mills too, it's like she went into Whole Foods in Lincoln Park in Chicago and just talked to the people on the ground, like business development in general is like, you just have to get your foot in the door somewhere. It doesn't have to be at the executive level. Like just someone can lead to someone else. I know I've experienced that with business development. Um, That's really fascinating. So you got your foot in the door and you were able to get your champion. And so now when these distributors are, they're shopping your product around to these bigger, these bigger stores, because something you've done really well to, to scale to the multi-millions is that you have been able to get into top one retailers. Can you really walk us through that process? You know, you have someone that has your product, but like, what can you control in that process to make sure you have a home run? Yeah. So even though these distributors carry your products, you're still required to do most of the sales unless you can engage their salespeople that call on those retailers. And that's, that's a lot of what I've done is I would be with a distributor. I'd find out, you know, who called on Whole Foods or who called on, you know, any of the accounts and ask them, Hey, what's going on with the buyer? What are they looking for? Um, Here's my ideas. Here's what I have. And they say, Hey, Oh, 
they're really looking for this for, you know, a Mother's Day program. So let's let's pitch this or hey, they're not really, you know, reviewing this category for four months. So let's get everything ready and come back in four months and, you know, send an email to the buyer directly or self CC me and start to build a relationship with the retailers yourself. I always tell people to build relationships with retailers themselves, you know, and just even if you don't have your stuff all together, it may be, it may take six months, a year, two years, three years to get into a retailer. It took me probably five years to get into Costco. Wow. emailing him at like at least once a year. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So like it actually even reminds me of um, my food. I just listened to Siete Foods, Siete Family Foods. They're in like the grains, the no grains um, category. Mm-hmm. It's a Mexican owned food brand. And they did the same thing where they're like, they didn't get into Whole Foods initially, but it was from someone who introduced you to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really, it just seems like In the CPG space, it's always like, who knows someone that knows someone that can get you in front of just anywhere in the, in the chain. And that can go really, really far. And so you are now in the Costco's of the world. You are in Mariano's, which is a Chicago based brand. The last time I checked, weren't you in Jewel? Um, yeah, we've got a little bit in Jewel. We're in Target. And then we rolled out in Walmart, about a thousand stores of Walmart amazing. Again, it goes back to distribution for products. It's like, you need to get in front of people. If they're not aware of your brand, like where are shopper shopping grocery stores for products like this. And so what I'm also finding fascinating, what's happening in the industry, I've seen this in beauty. I've seen it in fashion where a lot of companies, especially when COVID hit, are taking a step back and they really want to own the value chain, similar to like an Amazon and I'm really curious to know, like, now that you have gotten to this place, what does your distribution strategy look like today? Because I don't, it doesn't seem like for any company, you can only be in one channel and that works. I think probably for CPG back in the nineties or something that could work really well, but it seems like you need to have a multi-channel approach in order to master CPG today. So how do you all at social address distribution? What does it look like? Yeah, so I like to come back to the consumer because essentially if you're building a brand, what you are doing is you are creating a community of people in the world who love your products. Now, that could be that community could be based on a geog- geography and you go really deep with that community in one geography. It could be based on a age demographic or, you know, psychographic, behavioral kind of uh, categorization uh, and do it e-commerce. So for instance, you know, I'm going to target women who are 20 to 30 who do yoga. Essentially, you know, who is my key consumer and where does she, it's a woman for me, uh, where does she expect us to be? Where is she going to be able to discover it in a way that will position the product? You know, she, she's not going to see it in a dollar store, right? She sees so, social in a dollar store, that's going to send the wrong message. Essentially really zeroing in on who is your key consumer and how can you meet their needs? I do think that the more simple you can make it, the better um, with the simplest being direct to consumer because direct to consumer, you, you have higher profits because you don't have that delivery truck besides UPS, you know, 
Um, you can get your community going, you can get your email list going, you can just get data on who your consumers are and start to build that following. And then once you do that, you can take that to a retailer and say, hey, you know, I just sold, you know, this many cases to consumers in your market. So consumers in your marketplace know about the brand want the brand. And that can, can be a really powerful sales story to show that you've already got interest in your product. Yeah. And this takes me back to what you said around even developing those relationships yourself when you go and sell into those retailers instead of just relying on the distributor. Because if there's something that, you know, companies that I see across the board, but especially in commerce space that are really, really killing it at is trying to own as much of the vertical as possible, because if you have a middleman that is owning your entire value chain, God forbid something happens in COVID and that is no longer accessible to you, you have nowhere to kind of pull out of. So I know you have e-commerce. When did you all start your e-commerce? Was that from the beginning or did you slowly, gradually you know, roll that out over time. What did that look like? Yeah. So for alcohol, we had to get a license state by state. So I've been getting those licenses over the past two, two, three years. I think we probably started, yeah, we probably started 20 before 2017, we started e-commerce. However, like you're saying, you know, owning your value chain, um, we've always produced social at co-packers. So that's producers that make the product for us. And especially during COVID, uh, we ran into them not being able to keep up with production, them raising prices, them, you know, delaying orders, lots of challenges with that. And really I've had those challenges every summer we've been out of stock uh, and it's really hurt our growth. So now I'm switching to either buy a brewery or partner with a, a, another brewery and us, you know, team up together. So I'm figuring that out in the next, hopefully by the end of next week, I'll know which way that's going to go. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, we've had it for a long time, but whenever I'm out of stock, it's the first thing I have to turn off because first, most important is to keep the retailers in stock because you have that position on the shelf and they, they can't be out of stock. So I always have to turn the e-commerce off just to, to meet the needs of the retailers, but it's so finicky because it's like a, a chicken and the egg, like where it's, oh, we have all this growth, but also we need all this additional capital to be able to keep up with growth. There's actually this in, incredible woman entrepreneur who's in the like game space, like think of like the taboos of the world and monopolies of the world. And she creates, she's in like 450 different targets and 50 different Walmarts. And she's just like, it's expensive. It is expensive to like that you have to i mean you're essentially there's some form of rent there to be even seen in those spaces plus you're dealing with your packaging and producing the product itself and then if you start let's say with a co-packer you are at the whim of them and now you're at the stage you've been doing this what since 2012 yeah 2012 mm-hmm. so you started e-commerce in 2017 that's five years later so you focused on wholesale went to e-commerce. Now you're saying we need to own this value chain. It's 2021. And so you have raised 4.5 million to date, which is a feat in the CPG space, especially because investors historically are so risk averse towards overhead, anything high overhead inventory. I know when we were doing ZipFit, that was one of the biggest concerns where we were like, no, 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 we don't own any inventory. That's why we were able to secure checks. But a lot of investors like, I don't, we don't want the inventory, but you know what could happen with inventory. 
So what do you feel was the trigger or the excitement for investors to get on board with social, knowing that the nature of this space is capital intensive, but there is a lot of, you know, there can be a lot of reward if you do it right, but it's still a huge risk. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing there was identifying, actually, it kind of came to me to be honest, Um, but there was investors that have a history of investing in alcohol startups. So exactly what I am, mostly it was probably craft beer and they started effing vodka actually, but they have done this. They know the space. They they actually own a, a firm in the alcohol space. So they, you know, yeah, they, under, they just understand the scenario and they've scaled and exited a brand in the past. So they, they knew the drill and they could see that retailers were buying in. That's the biggest thing is back to that sales, you know, being so, so important when you're first starting and, and always, but especially when you're first starting is, you know, do you, can you get people to believe that this is the trend? This, this is what people want. It's not available yet, but here's, there's people that, that want it. Um, and if you can get those retailers on board, that speaks volumes. This is so timely. I just spoke to a founder this morning about that storytelling and like leading the investor to the much bigger opportunity. It's like, we're going to start here and here's what's happening from a trends or market activity perspective that might be an underbelly that is not as, you know, it's not mass yet, but you have to let them know, Hey, this is what's happening right now. And this is potentially where it's going to go. Um, painting that story, which I find a lot of a lot of founders when they're struggling raising miss that mark. It's like you have to be able to show someone where is their ROI going to come from, especially if it's an investor, right? Where's the ROI going to come from? The same thing with when you're selling into these bigger stores, where's their ROI going to come from and paint that picture that they might not be able to see, but because you're the expert in the space, you're able to connect those dots for them, which I absolutely love. And I think about this space too, like products in general, fashions like this, beauties like this, um, products are like this, like newness for consumers is huge. They're always looking for the new thing because they we've gotten so used to options. Um, I honestly get overwhelmed with a lot of options. I like just a few things done really well, but that's just the nature of like consumerism right now. But in your space to create something new, again, requires upfront capital it's expensive. You have to test it out. You have to get all of like, especially in, you know, alcohol space, you have to get permits and it's this whole thing that can, I mean, that really adds up. So how do you all address newness and bringing new things to market at social? Cause I was just on your site yesterday and you got it a couple of new things from when we were ordering like your stuff in droves at the office, but now you have like Rose and which is, was so awesome to see, but I mean, that's a really big commitment. So how have you addressed in the last few years in scaling this company, rolling out new products, knowing that a lot of consumers are are really, really expecting that from companies? Yeah, rolling out new products is a key part of expansion, for sure. And it shows retailers that, you know, you're thriving, that you're evolving, uh, that you're continuing really to meet and listen to your, your consumers, because that's where those ideas come from, right? You know, it's like, you know, what would they like? And at the same time, it is it is capital intensive and it does create complexity. Uh, every SKU you add 
creates complexity, it creates new packaging, a new tray, a new formula, a new new vendors. I mean, so many things, so many things. And so I do believe in, you know, keeping it, keeping it as tight as you can and really focusing on your core brand and just, just growing awareness of those core items. I, I didn't do this, <laughs> do what I do what I say, not what I do. Um, but if I had to do it all over again and what, you know, the advice I was always given was like, focus, 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 because, you know, that can scale a lot faster and those consumers are out there. Um, yeah, that, that would be my advice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so crazy. Cause we say this all the time to, to founders. I'm sure all the OG gets you done. Queens listening. No, we talk about focus all the time. And we did the same thing at, at ZipFit where we were like the, as a founder, when you have the vision for where you're going, it's so, it feels like it's right in front of you. And so you have that, that impulse to want to do it all right now, because you're like, we can get, I can see it. I can see it. But it's like, okay, we have to start right here. And we did the same thing where it was like, wait, all of our customers who are loving our dreams are like, if you can do my entire wardrobe, wait, game changer. And we got so excited because that's where we were going. And we made the mistake of going into um, shirts before we even had saturated enough of the market for jeans. And what we were found with when we looked at the actual numbers is it was slowing down our sales process. We didn't have the technology built out for shirts. Um, and we had to scale back on that and say, you know what, we're going to focus here. So there is so much power in focus. And I think later as you evolve, I always tell founders, you need to find your books. Amazon started with books that runs your life. It's okay to start with one area, do that very well. Then you can templatize it and scale it to other categories. That's amazing advice. So what do you feel has been like one of your, the, one of the biggest mistakes you've made in your business while scaling to this point that has also come to be one of your greatest lessons as a founder? <sighs> yeah. It's like, which, yeah. where do we start? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's, there's plenty of mistakes. Just, we don't have enough time for the multitude, but yeah, you know, the one that, that kind of hits, hits close and kind of hurts is, um, I, I had this wonderful team and it was a lot of interns that, that I ended up hiring. And I mean, these wonderful, most, a lot of more women. And we just, we were a dream team. I mean, just, we were, felt like family. Uh, we, everyone worked their butt off and we just had fun. And we, it was just, it was, it was all these A players. And then to be, you know, to be honest, we kind of started growing, which we took, let's say at the time, another $2 million. And I started hiring, I started hiring and I started hiring vice, I had, you know, three vice, no, I had four vice presidents. Um, I had a team of, it was about 14 people, but I started hiring all of these, you know, kind of big shots. Um, and, and the culture, it just, we expanded too fast and, and, and then I decided to move to LA uh, because I wanted to be moving and shaking with media and just, you know, that was our biggest marketplace. So I kind of went out there and paved the way sales out there, but I overestimated the leadership that remained and kind of like, you know, that they could just create the culture. And 
what I've discovered is essentially, you know, the founder or a couple of the key key players um, are really needed to set to remain or like to keep the culture. And our culture was, you know, working hard but fun and just but really on our game. And you know, it's like you get a couple people in your organization that don't share the same values, and it really can spoil the whole bunch. You know, it's, I totally, I learned at Booth, like hire slow, fire fast. And I, yeah, I've just seen that over and over again, that I've, a lot of times have taken too long to, to let people go that aren't a fit. Um, and, you know, that can be very detrimental. So. Yeah. I had a conversation with another female entrepreneur who exited her company in um, Chicago, like years ago. And she called it um, the the rotten apple of the bunch syndrome, where yeah. they had scaled pretty fast. And they had one person on the team that just culturally was not a good fit and wasn't getting their way. And so they were in the ears of so many people and just created this cancer to the point that they looked up and their team was so divided. And the founders are like, what happened here? Mm-hmm. And it is so, so like... I I've done this and I even recently had to go through it. I, I put everyone on like 90 day, 60 to 90 day to test them out now because yeah. that cultural fit, like you can have people that might be phenomenal at what they do, but if they're detrimental to what you've built culturally, mm-hmm. that is going to be way that the ROI is not going to be there. There's yeah. always going to be talent, but if they are not a fit for where you're going, it doesn't mm-hmm. even matter. That's a great, great advice. So yeah. one, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, and, and just to add to that, yeah, I totally can see that when I look back, it's like there was one person who was at the, the core of the dysfunction that occurred. Yep. And I can see that I, you know, made a lot of excuses for them. And, you know, besides, you know, being a cultural fit, sometimes they can even be a cultural fit, kind of, but they're just not able to get the job done, but they're really trying hard and they're, they're, they're a good somewhat culture fit or, you know, I mean, there's all those different elements, but it's, it's gotta be both. It's gotta be, are they having a positive effect on the culture and are they actually getting it done and, you know, and growing and expanding at the same rate as, or more as you are. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's so important to have those firm boundaries. I'm so happy you brought that up, especially around boundaries, because in the accelerator yesterday, we do this thing called Get Shit Done Groups, where our, our founders really get to dive into their specific challenges and get feedback from the group. And one thing that came up was one of the founders, they had someone that had been on their team for quite a while, and they had become like a family and friends. And it's really hard. It's really hard when you have that connection, because sometimes, you know, if life events happen, or maybe that person just can't keep up with the pace of what's happening in the company. It's really hard to detach yourself because you have that emotional tie. But the way I see it from a long-term perspective, it's not good for either party. If A, it's not great for the company and the founders when you're like, we're growing a business here, this has to happen. But it's also not great for the other person that can feel when they're not doing well. And that's such a hit to like, we're they could be putting their energy in something they could be doing really good somewhere else. No, I'm really happy you brought that up. When you think of, you know, our motto at Get Shit Done is fuck 4%. And we say that because 
Women make up nearly 50% of entrepreneurs. Our companies only bring around in around 4% of total business revenues. And, you know, when we think of the future, it is making sure more women go through the pipeline and scaling. Um, that doesn't mean everybody, but there's only 1.7% of women who have scaled beyond the million dollar point and you've been able to do it. So as you're going to your next level of growth, what will you be focusing on to give 4% the middle finger? What, what's the next phase for social? Yeah. So my, my 2021 word, it's actually two words, but it's easy partnerships. Ooh, so, I like that. Yeah. So I, I know I can't do it alone. Uh, you know, in my team, we can't do it alone. We've got to, we've got to build some real partnerships and that's, you know, our partnerships with retailers, our partnerships with our investors uh, and new investors. So uh, we're looking to raise another million with hopefully as much women as possible, because we are trying to get our official women owned business status, which dropped a bit with this last round of funding. So I need to raise another million dollars uh, with women. And yeah, this, this production partnership so that I can build my foundation strong, you know, with this, with production that I can rely on that can, has the room to grow you know, that's, that has the same values, you know, and abilities. And so, yeah, so, so that still, you know, I'm still in that foundational level of, you know, eight years in, we've been able to produce, but yeah, just really setting, setting us up for success. And then from there, once I have that checked, it is me getting back in my zone of genius, partnerships, media, raving about why social is the absolute best alcohol in the world and, you know, shouting it from the rooftops in, in whatever way I can, because that's my job and it is. And, you know, and I haven't done that very much because I've been so caught up with operations. So yeah. And building real relationships with consumers. Cause I've kind of been behind the scenes a lot in some ways. And yeah, that's the goal is really put myself up front and connect and join the conversation. I love that you mentioned that that zone of genius and going back to the foundation because I, I don't care how big you get. I, I think you always have to go back to it. Think of like why we spend so much on uncertain taxes for infrastructure. Like you have to keep building on and coming back to that foundation. And you mentioning your zone of genius, actually uh, one of our founders is going through that. Like as a founder, your best your best ROI is focusing on the things that you're really good at, which is your zone of genius. And we've seen this, like when our founders has scaled, you know, pretty well, but she's so exhausted in her company because she's been wrapped up in the operational thing so much. And there are seasons where you have to do that. Absolutely. Like we're, we're at that phase right now and get you done where I'm like, okay, we need to get this in place. And then I need to go back to what I'm really good at, but it's always important to a make sure that foundation's set but also you need to hop back in as founder to what you're really good at. My team knows I hunt and kill and bring it back. I don't want to cook. <laughs> I just don't. My zone of genius is not there. In life, I can actually cook, but like in my business, I need to hunt and kill. I'm supposed to be out there. So I really, that really resonates with me. So you mentioned that you're, you're raising right now, but is there any other places we can support? So it looks like Right now, social is raising their millions, so hop on board. Other ways that we can support you for folks that are tuning in? Yeah, I think, you know, we love to partner with 
with, I call them, you know, community leaders, anyone who is bringing people together, especially during this time where it's safe. Yeah, we love to partner with them either through social media collaborations. We have a social babe affiliate program, or we call it the social society. So uh, people can earn commission on any e-commerce cases sold using their code. Really just any ways that we can collaborate. They can email me at leah at socialsparklingwine.com or we also have a media, media at socialsparklingwine.com. And yeah, I just, I'd love to connect with other people and women who are out in the world, you know, making things happen, getting shit done and just figure out how we can help each other and how we can just kind of build each other up. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. And special shout out to our squad, Kayla Algie, 